We at the Emergency Medical Minute are excited to announce that tickets are now on sale for our largest event ever. You can find more information and purchase tickets at our website, emergencymedicalminute.com. As always, enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to Emergency Medical Minute with our next deep dive guest speaker, John Winkler. Um, today we're going to be talking about the topic of wilderness medicine. This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. Enjoy the show. First, John, would you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and where you work and what you currently do? Hey, guys. I'm John Winkler. I'm an emergency physician at Swedish Medical Center. Um, I've been here about five and a half years. I grew up in Denver and love working in Denver, being around the outdoors, being around family. So I got interested in wilderness medicine um, probably from the many times I've been hurt in the wilderness and <laughs> figured out how to get out of it. And I never really thought about it as a kid, but looking back on it, you know, I could have really been in a bad situation. Um, I think the, the first kind of flashback in my mind is when I was a teenager and uh, climbing in arches by myself without any rope and um, got stuck on a ledge for about 15 or 20 minutes before I was finally able to figure a way safely down and, um, you know, there's many other things like that, but, um, got lost in the wilderness a few times. One first time when I was 12, managed to find my way back and, um, just all these near misses that you think, um, about when you're older, when you don't really think it was a big deal at the time, but realize, wow, that could have been really bad. <laughs> so, um, now that I have kids, um, you know, I really have that, um, thought to be way more prepared when I go into the wilderness. Cause I want to share that with them, but I want to do it safely. Um, my first, uh, idea of wilderness medicine was when I was interviewing for residencies and, um, I got really excited looking at the different programs that had wilderness medicine. They kind of drew to me. So I was really interested in locations where I could have fun and play outdoors and then, um, you know, still, uh, be able to be in a good program. I ended up uh, doing residency at University of Arizona in Tucson and um, chose to live a little far from campus right next to a national park. Um, and then uh, went out hiking and discovered that Arizona was very different from where I grew up in Colorado and also from um, Wisconsin where I did my medical school training. Um, I went for a six-hour hike with camelback thought I had more than enough water um, ended up getting lost um, off the trail into a wash the wash looks a lot like trails I was headed down I could see where I was going um, but the the train was a lot different the plants were very spiky and hurt walking through the brush and I realized this was a lot harder than anything I'd ever experienced before I ended up getting really dehydrated um, and uh, ended up uh, so dehydrated that I, once I made it back to the the trailhead, I threw up when I tried to drink water and and realized, hey, I was really dehydrated and I wasn't I wasn't thinking clearly. So um, I decided, you know, I gotta learn all the different environments and trains. And I think your your mistakes and your ignorance 
um, if if you uh, don't do anything too stupid or fatal, then <laughs> you can learn from it, and you can um, you can really it can motivate you to to learn more and be prepared. Um, so I wasn't able to do a wilderness medicine fellowship like I always wanted to, um, but uh, after I um, became a partner in our group, I really put a lot of my efforts into building up medical kits and emergency kits and kind of planning on doing these long trips in the wilderness. And uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, my oldest son, who was 14 at the time, we decided to uh, venture on bikepacking onto the uh, Trail Divide. It's uh, the Great Divide Race. It's from Banff, Alberta to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. We were going to do a a four-day trip of it and uh, started in Steamboat, and we're going to make our way to Breckenridge on bikes just with our packs and nothing else and had an incredible time um, and learned a lot of things. Um, we found out that our communication devices um, and plans didn't work ideally, but we, we worked it through and we ended up um, with some great adventure stories and, and we were safe and warm and we had enough food. And even though we were completely exhausted and our trip cut short and didn't go the way we planned, it was a really fun experience and that motivated me to learn more. And I ended up going to a wilderness medicine uh, conference last February in Park City with Wilderness Medical Society and um, ended up taking advanced wilderness life support and loved it so much. I became an instructor and taught my first class in September. So since then, I've just become wilderness medicine junkie and trying to to learn everything I can and do everything I can. So, Well, thank you, John. I can definitely echo some of those experiences for those of us that live in very outdoorsy places. I think we've all been in situations where we wish we would have prepared a little bit better or brought different um, types of kits with us to help us through some of those, those critical moments where your life flashes before your eyes and you said, I wish I would have packed a little more of this or a little more of that. Um, so with the winter season coming up, I know a lot of us like to stay outdoors and do a lot of wintertime activities. But I'm sure that that's a little bit different preparation than if you were doing it in other seasons. Um, so I just today wanted to focus on a couple of subtopics within wilderness medicine that specifically apply to outdoor winter activities. And some of those that we're going to talk about today include cold exposure, hypothermia, frostbite, altitude sickness, issues surrounding avalanche, sun blindness, and then common trauma injuries with snow activities. Um, let's maybe start out talking about cold exposure and hypothermia and sort of walk us through the situations where that tends to occur and what you would advise people to do to better prepare, or if you're in that situation, how do you get out of it? So I think the, the first thing is to be aware that it can happen um, and to realize when you're you're starting to, to get cold or people around you are starting to get cold. Um, recognizing that, hey, I'm not thinking clearly, or I'm getting cold, or, you know, this might be dangerous, I need to do something. Um, and the most important thing to do is to, to stay active and warm up your, your core temperature. Um, so <clears throat> hypothermia can happen in the water, it can happen in tropical areas, it can happen, um, you know, obviously in the snow, the winter, um, it can happen if you're not dressed warm enough. You know, I trained in Wisconsin, so a common occurrence was someone got drunk, fell down, 
got stuck outside or the little old lady went out to take out the trash and fell down her steps and then was out for however many hours in the cold until she was able to get help or whatever the situation. Um, so, you know, it, just being aware of, of what's happening and knowing how to get help and when to get help or what, what to do to, to stay warm. Um, remember in high school, I re- read, uh, the story of a guy walking across Alaska called to build a fire. And it's really fascinating. Um, you know, how it talks about what's going on in his mind and you can kind of see the stages of hypothermia, just, just listening to what's going on in his mind. People get confused. They act weird. Um, they don't think straight. Uh, they become, um, less coordinated. Their speech is slurred. Um, and, you know, if, if you, um, have ever seen anybody in that situation, it can be very mild to very dramatic. You hear those stories of people with extreme hypothermia suddenly panicking and literally stripping down and, um, speeding up the, the process of, of hypothermia and, and, and death. It can be, it can be really scary. Um, I think, you know, preparation's the key with, with anything, know how to stay warm. Um, have plenty of layers. If you get wet, being able to um, get those clothes dry or have a dry pair um, with you. So if you if you see hypothermia in yourself or others, you want to stay as active as possible. Warm up your core temp. So you can. I've literally heard of people doing jumping jacks or running in place. Um, just anything to speed up your core temp. Um, I uh, I got into. Um, fat biking a couple years ago and um there's a couple crazy long endurance races that i've not yet got the courage to try but want to one day try there's a place or a race called arrowhead northern minnesota it's called the icebox of the country because it can get down to like minus 40 and then there's the iditarod trail that used to be for for dog sled racing but now skiers and fat bikers do it um and the the temperatures there are insane so when those athletes are, are trained to recognize hypothermia in themselves and others and, and, um, learn how to stay warm through activity, through, uh, boiling warm water, um, through changing their wet layers, whatever it is. Um, beyond that, if, if you need medical help, then you need to have a plan for evacuation and, and to be safe. So John, when patients start to experience hypothermia, um, what type of complications do you see first? And then when it progresses to frostbite, um, what parts of the body are necessarily affected first? So kind of two different topics. I'll take it in in two ways. So hypothermia, um, there's the definition of below 35 degrees Celsius is hypothermia. Mild is 32 degrees Celsius to 35, and that usually just get some slurring of your words, um, confusion, some ataxia, um, problems with your coordination. And that can be, um, you know, really high risk if you're in an extreme environment, if you're climbing, if you're out in the wilderness, and it can expose you to some potential serious trauma if, if you're not aware of it. Um, you can see that in the ER, you know, we frequently check people's mental status and core temp and we can warm them up quickly. There's not any long-term problems with that if it's recognized and treated quickly. Um, the real problems come when you get below the 32 degrees. Uh, 29 degrees Celsius to 32 is the moderate hypothermia and severe is, is below 29 degrees Celsius. And this can be life-threatening and, and permanent. Um, so 
uh, with the the moderate, it can affect the heart. It can affect the the brain where you're going into a coma. You can even get fixed dilated pupils. You can it can mimic brain death. That's why you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Um, it can um, cause severe bradycardia, and that's um, not vaguely mediated. So it, it's um, basically just the cold, cold slowing down the activity of the heart. Um, it can um, cause lethal arrhythmias, especially if there's any um, movement around there of, of the body, like picking up or moving. So, so moving a, a cold person that's nearly dead um, can be very life-threatening for them unless you're aware of that and do some rapid rewarming. Um, and then below 29, basically, they're, they're very, very close to death, and all those things are even more extreme, um, and they can go into to cardiac arrest. Um, you know, when we talk about treating those things, um, what you want to do is warm up their core temperature as rapidly as possible. So you can do um, warm saline through the IVs if you're able to get an IV if their skin is not cold enough um, that you can you can get an IV. Um, you can do um, peritoneal lavage. You can do bladder lavage, um, warm um, bear hugger. You can uh, put warm saline in armpits and groin. And then even more extreme is uh, is uh, you know doing um, chest tubes, doing lavage through chest tubes. You can also do um, um, intra-abdominal um, lavage, and uh, you can also put them on ECMO and warm them up. Um, they've even put people on on bypass who were um, life threatened, and that that can you know bypass the the issues with the heart instability and warm them up until you can see if there's any um, survivable brain function. But so those are the things that we, we do to treat um, the people in severe hypothermia. If you do get a, a very abnormal heart rhythm and they do go into cardiac arrest, um, compressions are important, but they may be cold enough. You may not even get, be able to compress their chest enough. Um, if they do go into like a ventricular fibrillation or tachycardia, you can shock them. You can also give them lidocaine. Neither of those are very effective until you've warmed them up. Um, but it is at least something to try. So, John, is there a point when a patient comes into the ER where it's really futile to go ahead and try to um, do anything to rewarm them or save them? Is there a point where you say that they are clinically dead? So, um, there's a couple cases where warm and dead is is not where you have to get to, and, and that's if your serum potassium is over 10 or if your pH is below 7. In those cases, you can just stop. Um, you know, people in severe, severe hypothermia below 29 Celsius can look like they're in rigor mortis, but they, they're literally frozen. Um, some of those people can survive, but if you can get a, a gas, like we're lucky to have a bedside epoch with a bedside chemistry and pH and lactate and all that. If, if your pH is less than 7 or if your potassium is over 10, then you're done and you stop. Well, thanks for describing hypothermia. Could we also talk about the patient that presents with frostbite and how you might go about diagnosing that and treating it in the ER? So frostbite can happen. Um, it's similar to burns. You know, you have your, your sunburn type, which is frost nip, and those people usually recover fully. Um, it's basically like having a, a sunburn. Your epidermis can heal. Um, it, when you get uh, frostbite, it can be superficial. It can be deeper or it can be full thickness um, down to, to muscle and bone. So we treat it very similar to burns. Um, the 
issue with with frostbite is you're creating ice crystals uh, inside of cells, and once that happens, um, then you're de- destroying tissue. Um, you can also um, block off blood flow uh, to to that area. Um, usually happens fingers, um, toes, nose, face exposure, anything that's usually exposed or exposure that's the farthest from blood flow. Usually, you know, the toes are the farthest from blood flow. Uh, lots of times we um, have um, plenty of warm boots or warm stuff, so our hands or face may be more exposed unless you're thinking about that. Um, so the the recognition of it is kind of, you know, getting cold and numb, losing some feeling. It starts to look like a waxy, whitish area. Um may not have um, good capillary refill, may not have much sensation, and then it can um, get deeper uh, when it gets down to the, the muscle and bone. It can literally look or feel like wood. So it's kind of heavy and lifeless. If you want a really good, crazy description, I just finished reading a book called Into Thin Air. Um, it's about the 1996 um, Mount Everest uh, e- expedition that kind of turned disastrous because large groups of people summited too late on the mountain and there was a severe storm and uh, people were trapped up high and up to minus 40 to minus 80 degrees and um, there was a a guy who who survived severe frostbite that wrote a separate book Um, but describing um, you know frostbite and hypothermia kind of the judgment errors that happened to all of them because of altitude and cold that led to some of the disaster along with other things is, is pretty incredible, not only from like a human standpoint, but also from a medical perspective. Um, so the, the key is recognizing it. If you start to feel like, um, you know, get more layers on, um, take extra hand warmers, toe warmers, extra clothes with you, um, cover your face adequately. Um, if you can get warm, and rewarm a frostbite, then that's great, but you don't want to rewarm it twice. If you rewarm and then refreeze, it's actually worse than if you uh, didn't rewarm in the first place. So you want to get to a place where you can um, rewarm and then not not get cold or frozen again. Um, if you can um, be able to say, if it's a base camp or if it's like uh, you know just out of out of the cold, a house, something, anything. Um, once you, you, uh, get to a place where you can rewarm the most effective is a warm water bath. Um, but you can, you can use, um, anything you want to get off the old wet clothing, get dry, um, and then get new warm clothing or dry, dry blankets, anything, anything warm, um, warm water, not boiling is important. It can be incredibly painful to rewarm. Um, so you want to make sure adequate pain control is given if you're treating someone, in the emergency department. Um, another thing is once you have severe frostbite, um, our, we're a burn center, so we have we actually have a burn protocol for TPA in these cases. And I looked up um, one from um, last year. I don't think there's been an update since then. Um, but um, they're doing um, finding high-risk patients. They're doing an angiogram of the area that's affected and seeing where there's decreased blood flow. And um, then they're giving intraarterial TPA, and they're giving—I um, don't remember the exact amount—but they're giving a bolus followed by a maintenance dose for up to 24 hours. And um, you can see some pretty dramatic images if you if you look this up. 
of angiogram before TPA and angiogram after. I heard somebody speak who who had this, and it was traumatic that he was able to to, to save uh, a finger. Well, John, that topic is very near and dear to my heart as I have Raynaud's and I have to very much plan ahead. And it's um, heated gloves, heated insoles, things like that to keep myself functional. But for people like me that are at high risk or just folks that have been out and exposed for a while, are there preventative things that we can be doing to help decrease our risk of frostbite? For sure. I think the, the key, like you said, is prevention, keeping things warm, having extra layers, warming stuff inside gloves, boots, Um also, if you get in a situation where you are starting to get cold and maybe a little hypothermic and not thinking clearly, or your hands feel like they're really cold and they're not working well, don't don't take off gloves to do something you need to do. Try to rewarm first. Um, if you have a, a base layer that's wet, um, you may be able to keep that base layer wet and warm. But if you take it off, that that is probably going to refreeze and you can't use that that piece of clothing again. Um, there's the idea of vapor barriers. So you can have a very thin glove or a very thin sock and then put something like plastic over it. If um, people lived in the um, Midwest or northern areas, very commonly they'd have kids with shopping bags over their their gloves and yeah, and then put uh, more gloves on over that. Um, it's something that can, can keep some of that moisture inside. Some people use baby powder or talc. Um, and if you have extra layer, extra clothing, so extra base layer, extra socks, extra base layer gloves, um, you can trade that out if you're in a safe position to do that, keeping extra hand warmers, toe warmers. Um, just being aware that um, if you're starting to feel uh, frostbitten or you think you may be hypothermic, um, just just be take a pause do uh, uh, like a mental check and slow things down so that you make sure you're doing things safe. Or you make your husband carry tons of extra gloves and socks for you. That That's works. another solution. <laughs> That's solution. Yeah. So let's transition to talk about snow blindness because that's also an issue that um, you mentioned into thin air and there were members of that um, of group that also experienced snow blindness. So can you describe to us how that happens, um, prevention measures, and then how you would treat that if a, if a patient came in with it? All right, so snow blindness is is nicknamed that because it can happen in the snow very easily. You can even be wearing sunglasses um, and think you're being you're blocking it, but it, the the sun can get around the top, the bottom, the sides unless you have the the true protection, the the full um, glacier goggles as they call them that blocks all the sides. Then you can be exposing yourself to um, to the light, the UV, and it's also called UV keratitis because um, it really affects the um, uh, the eye dramatically. It can can be very incredibly painful, cause tearing. Um, it can cause uh, photophobia, foreign body sensation. Um, can be you know very 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 extreme. Um, it can be cause blindness to the point that all you can see is um, what looks like snow. Um, so in that book, Into Thin Air, there was a couple people that became completely blind and since they were hypothermic and confused um they you know were close to wandering off the mountain or close to um rappelling down something without their harnesses tied or or you know whatever it was um there's many other stories like that around many different communities mostly the the climbing community but 
Um, so if you feel like that's starting to to happen, obviously cover your eyes better. You can make um, improvised things. You can use goggles. You don't have to have the specialized glacier goggles. Um, you can um, you know make a piece of clothing that, that blocks the top, bottom, or sides of the the sunglasses. Um, just be aware that it can it can happen very quickly um, if you wear contacts take them out um, so hospital care um, you can uh, diagnose it through slit lamp and fluorescein looks like a punctate um, diffuse uptake throughout the the cornea um, topical anesthetics anesthetics help um, you can do topical ketorolac um, can consider patching vasotracin ointment um, can help to other antibiotic ointments. Um, this usually heals completely. Sometimes it can be so extreme that the eyelids swell also. It's usually not an infection. It's usually from the, the UV reaction, the inflammatory reaction that happens afterwards. Um, so key, I think, is um, treating with antibiotics to prevent infection or ulcer and also pain medications and then... Um, um, close follow-up with an ophthalmologist to make sure you recover fully. Well, John, there's so many topics we could talk about surrounding wilderness medicine, even if we just narrow it down to winter activities. But let's finish out today by talking about some of the common trauma-type injuries that can happen. And when you're out in the wilderness um, doing different activities, what are some of the preventative steps that you can take? Or if something happens, what can you do right there on the spot and be aware of uh, things around you that you could utilize um, until you can get that patient maybe to the ER or the hospital? Um, I think the the key is that you can have lots and lots of um, uh, trauma that can happen whether you're right next to your house, whether um, you know you're out driving and get stuck in the cold because you're in a car accident or if you're in a remote location. Um, just to focus on more the remote location, um, you always want to um, be aware that trauma can happen, have a way to um, to get out of it. So you always want to go with a, a friend or a group of friends, have other people know where you're going. Um, when I go out in the wilderness, whether it's in the, the summer or winter, um, I bring um, uh, something called an inReach device, and that's a kind of a satellite text messaging phone. And it also has a SOS button in case you do break your leg and you can't get out. Um, that you can you can get res- rescue. There's a number of different devices out there. This one allows you to send text messages back and forth with um, the search and rescue or with your family. Um, there's an, another common device that's used called the spot tracker um, that's used in a lot of um, endurance races uh, where they use to track their athletes and also make sure they're safe. Um, that one can send an SOS signal, but you can't do any text messaging. Um, so I think it's really important to, to make sure you have a good plan. Everyone knows exactly where you're going. I think that's really especially true with backcountry stuff. There's other people who know a lot more about backcountry stuff or avalanche rescue than, than I do, though I've had some, some classes on it. I haven't actually done it. So I think it'd be good to, to dive deeper with somebody else. But um, even minor injuries in the wilderness can become life-threatening if you're stuck in the cold. Um, so... Um, I always carry uh, a SAM splint with me. I never did before I took advanced wilderness life support, whether I'm going biking or um, backcountry or whatever. Um, it's, it's always in my, my pack now. 
Um, and then you can make litter carries. You can improvise splints from tree branches. You can even splint the leg to the other leg. You can use boots for a C collar. You can use a Sam splint as a C collar. There's a, you know, there's a lot to get into with that. But, um, I think the key though is communication with, um, people in your group, making sure you have a, a group with you where you can rescue each other and also that people that are not going with you know where you're at and you have something where you can call for an emergency if you need it. All right. Thanks, John. Any final words of advice to those that are headed outdoors this winter? If you could leave them with just a couple of sentences, what would you say to, to people headed out into the snow? I'd say just have fun and be prepared. Um, you can't um, use anything that's not with you and you don't want to carry so much that you can't have fun or you can't carry it. Um, but um, make sure that uh, you go with a group of people that are like-minded, that care about being prepared, that care about being safe. Um, you can only um, be as safe as uh, the, the whole group wants to be safe. So it's pick, pick your group carefully and also um, remember to have fun and, and enjoy it. But have um, preparation in mind, but don't dwell on it too much. Great. Well, I want to thank um, Dr. John Winkler for being here at, with us at Emergency Medical Minute for this deep dive on wilderness medicine. Um, we look forward to a part two on similar topics as there's just so many to go through. Um, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks. Attention Emergency Medical Minute listeners. We are proud to announce that we have an email list. Members of the email list will receive exclusive bonus content, weekly quizzes, and early invitations to our events. Sign up for the email list on our website at emergencymedicalminute.com. Thanks, and keep listening.